This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And as always, I am here with Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan. Hi, Darren. I know I said this last episode, but it is true again. It has been another huge fortnight of news. On a full episode today, we've got three pairs of stories. First, a pair of foreign policy speeches by the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and Opposition Leader Bill Shorten. Next, we'll discuss Foreign Minister Maurice Payne's first trip to China, pairing that with the Australian government's raft of new initiatives for engagement with the South Pacific, what I am affectionately calling the South Pacific pivot slash rebalance. We'll also do a quick detour into the state of Victoria's participation in the Belt and Road Initiative. Third, a pair of elections, the US midterms, and we have a new president in Brazil. Okay, let's begin with the speeches, which, dear listeners, we pour over so you don't have to. And we will start with the Prime Minister, who on the 1st of November delivered his first major foreign policy speech at the Asia Society in Sydney. Now, you will recall that we discussed on an earlier episode his first trip overseas to Indonesia, and that was just days after he became Prime Minister. Well, now he's had a few months to settle into the job and think about the world and foreign policy, and this was, as he described it, him offering his perspective on Australia's engagement with the region and the world. And he didn't waste any time with the speech getting right to the point, opening with this line, quote, Our foreign policy defines what we believe about the world and our place in it. It must speak of our character, our values, what we stand for, what we believe in and, if need be, what we will defend. This is what guides our national interest. I fear foreign policy these days is too often being assessed through a narrow transactional lens." End quote. Then, towards the end of the speech, Morrison also said, quote, "...being true to our values and principles is always in our national interest." End quote. So, Alan, does this emphasis at the beginning of the speech on values surprise you? I mean, should we interpret this as Morrison taking a position on what is perennially seen as a trade-off between uh, security and economics or values and economics um, in Australian foreign policy? Or is this standard fare? I think it's pretty standard uh, fare. I can't think of a um, sort of major foreign policy statement uh, from any side of Australian uh, politics that hasn't had a dimension of values uh, in it. You can go back to the, well, you can go back a long way, but most recently, if you look at the 2017 uh, foreign policy white paper, you see a very, um, a very clear articulation of uh, Australian values in that. Uh, values are always going to uh, inform all dimensions of foreign policy just as they inform everything else that governments uh, do. The decisions that they make about education or health or um, taxation uh, are all values-based. Uh, so, no, I didn't see anything uh, anything particularly new in, in that. But values are interesting because they're messy and complex in just the same way that interests are. Uh, they're shaped by our experiences and by 
philosophy and they change over time. So I was struck by the fact that uh, racial and gender equality were among the Australian values listed in the uh, in the foreign policy uh, white paper and few Australians would argue with that. But during my own lifetime, those values sat uncomfortably with the position of early Australian governments as they fought to defend the white Australia policy. Okay, well, one of the values that Morrison enunciated was as follows, quote, we believe in standing by our mates side by side with nations that believe the same things we do from the United Kingdom and the democracies of Europe to the United States and Canada, from the state of Israel to the city state of Singapore, from Japan and South Korea in North Asia to New Zealand across the ditch, end quote. Now, of course, China wasn't on this list, and China didn't feature very prominently in the speech at all. And I note also that Morrison's speech at the Chinese-Australian Community event that we discussed in an earlier episode is still on our embassy's website in Beijing, but not on the Prime Minister's webpage. Now, Peter Harcher reported for the Fairfax Papers that after his speech, Morrison was asked about how Australia could strike the right balance on China policy. And in response, he recalled an answer that Australian businessman Ryan Stokes gave to a similar question years ago. Said Morrison, quote, and the question was, is China a friend or foe? And he said, well, to me, they're a customer. Alan, through the framing of his very own speech, that answer seems like the epitome of a transactional rather than a values-based approach. Am I missing something here? No, I think you're. <coughs> I think you're staring directly at it, Darren. I think that's right. It is uh, very transactional, and and that was uh, I noticed in the newspaper this morning in an interview that the Prime Minister gave the uh, Financial Review. He was again uh, quoting John Howard on how we don't have to choose between uh, our um, economic interests in in China and our security interests in the United States. So th- this gets uh, gets to the uh, heart of the dilemma for any Australian government these days, which is what weight uh, we put on the different uh, dimensions of, uh, of, of policy in our dealing with, uh, dealings with China. I suppose, Alan, if China is not a prominent part of the speech, he does mention it, but he's not engaging with those big questions and he wants to take a transactional approach... Does that mean that we can't really file this speech away as being a major statement on the Morrison Doctrine? Um, How should we sort of view it in context? Yeah, look, I I think that's right. Last uh, time we were talking, uh, I I mentioned the speech that Maurice Payne had given at the uh, AAA uh, National Conference. I thought there was a more broader uh, and more structured analysis of the government's uh, position than uh, this one, which was a sort of more a series of statements about uh, what we're doing or what we're interested in after the after the sort of broad introduction about values and um, uh, things like the pursuit of prosperity through private capital and uh, and uh, rights to property and so on. Okay, well let's shift then to sh- shortened speech which he gave on the 29th of October, three days prior to Morrison's speech. And this was at the Lowy Institute. And this was, I think, a pretty comprehensive document, almost 5,000 words after I cut and pasted into a Word document to read. And, uh, you know, he sought to define 
Australia's strategic context along five dimensions. First, Trump's America First policy. Uh, two, China, um, Xi Jinping's China Dream. Three, Brexit. Four, the Paris Climate Change Agreement. And five, um, stresses on international institutions and threats to the health of liberal democracies. He then, however, sounded a bit like Morrison when he opened with, quote, our foreign policy should speak for who we are, for the confidence we have in ourselves, for the values we believe in, for the region and the world in which we want to live. Now, Alan, I was very excited when, um, in expressing his values, Shorten came up with this, quote, foreign policy and national security policy are therefore directly linked to Labor's reforming social purpose and they are essential to its success. John Curtin and Ben Chifley knew this. They understood the connection between the lives of working Australians and the corridors of international diplomacy. They argued the case, as we will, that international arrangements must serve the interests of rising stand must serve the interests of rising living standards and a stronger safety net. They called it the positive approach. It influenced the way Australian leaders worked to shape the United Nations and new international trade, economic and labour organisations formed at the end of the Second World War. Now, Alan, you have given speeches about the, for the positive approach. And if I could recall correctly, it came up in our very first episode on the rules-based international order. Can you refresh our listeners' memory? Um, what is it and why is it potentially relevant to today? Well, I think the uh, phrase was invented by the economist Nugget Coombs, who was one of that group of brilliant economists uh, who were advising the Australian government after the Second World War. It was clear at that point that the US was determined to push for free and open trade as one of the central elements in the new post-war order. Those were the days. But uh, recognising the suspicion in Australia, and especially within the Labor Party itself, about the consequences of economic openness, and this was a very protected economy before then, Ben Chifley and his colleagues uh, argued that this openness had to be placed in the context of broader government obligations for full employment, industrial uh, development and rising living standards. So that was why uh, Doc Evatt fought hard and successfully to have a commitment to high standards of living and full employment incorporated in the UN Charter mm. itself. So it was really the earliest manifestation of the debate that's still going on today, as you could see from Shorten's uh, remarks, and one of the reasons why you're excited about this, uh, Darren, this, this argument about how you defend economic openness in ways that uh, make the community come along with you. Those mythical as, voters of Western <laughs> Sydney, are, as I have called them. Still important. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so, and that's why, as I said, that's why I'm excited by it, because if you need, if you believe that all politics is local and a strong rules-based order requires that domestic political support, then it's drawing those connections and the idea of the order serving a social purpose for the working you know, Australian that is really important. So hopefully this is the beginning of, of, uh, of that linkage and can provide a model around the world um, for um, sort of for building or sustaining that support. Another major takeaway uh, was that Bill Shorten, both in the speech and in questions afterward, 
really sought to strike a balance between the US and China by being vaguely critical of both. And the idea that under his leadership, Australia would be more independent in its foreign policy and speak, quote, truth to power. In the speech, he was critical of Donald Trump's America First brand of foreign policy. But then in the Q&A afterwards, he raised China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims, where hundreds of thousands have been detained in re-education camps in Xinjiang province. Alan, should we read much into a promise of greater independence? Or is this the kind of thing that opposition parties always say when trying to achieve some kind of separation on foreign policy issues prior to an election? Um, well, look, it was a point. It was a point Shorten clearly wanted to make. He returns to it um, a couple of times, and it's at the centre of his argument. So, I think we can uh, assume that he, uh, he he wanted people to uh, to note it. The central argument was that the world is changing, and that Australia therefore also has to change in its uh, response to it. He says that he uh, expects future U.S. governments to demand more reciprocity in international transactions. We need to think differently about foreign policy, uh, understanding that Australia will be more responsible than ever for setting our own future course, he, he says. So while underlying continuing commitment to the alliance in a way that all uh, Australian or Australia's major parties uh, do, he also notes interestingly that Australia's interests will be will obviously be different from those of the United States in some areas. Our national focus is different, our relationships with our close neighbours are different and our economies have different structures. So I thought that was a preparation for uh, underlying the point that uh, there will be uh, differences of approach, uh, uh, greater independence, if you want to, to put it that way. But I guess without being so specific in policy detail that he can be attacked for being, you know, too pro one side or the other. No, absolutely, and it was all it was all done within the uh, framing context of the alliance coming out of Labor policy in uh, in uh, Chifley's turn to America and uh, and um, Gillard's uh, support for yes. the uh, Marine base in the Northern Territory. So, mm. yeah, all, all, all um, it's it's in in that general context. Some final points to note about the speech are Shorten's promise to appoint a global human rights ambassador, uh, announced amid the raising of concerns in Cambodia, the Philippines and Vietnam, and of course, Myanmar, as well as a promise to increase the aid program. But on the other side of the ledger, Shorten made absolutely crystal clear that Labor would maintain offshore processing, turn the boat, uh, turning back the boats and fully resource Operation Sovereign Borders. Alan, you know, how, what do you make of this? This is, seems to be striking a balance between winning over those voters on the left who are horrified um, by some of Australia's behaviour, but not losing, um, you know, the majority of Australians apparently who support a tougher line on, on boat arrivals. Well, that's politics for you, yes. <laughs> isn't it? Um, uh, the opposition under Rudd introduced offshore processing and Shorten's obviously determined not to be wedged on mm. it uh, as an issue. Um, uh, he clearly uh, articulates a program for more active engagement in the global, global refugee issue through uh, aid and uh, humanitarian uh, visa uh, program. Uh, he talks about the New Zealand uh, so solution and so on. 
but he's uh, he's you know drawing a black black letter um, description of uh, of uh, of labour policy. The problem for all Australian policymakers is that the price the Australian public clearly uh, requires in order to, to support the formal migration and refugee program and multiculturalism generally is an effective border mm. control regime. I think we've seen that now through you know m- many years of, uh, of uh, polling and so on. Um, on the other hand, as you, you know, Shorten also reinforces a very traditional Labor position on, uh, on human rights. Uh, he says that uh, in a time of global disruption, much of the structure and content of Australian foreign policy must be new, but the principles that guide us should be those that have always shaped Labor's views of the uh, world. So he's, he's reasserting his own place within that uh, Labor tradition and the, uh, the and the human rights uh, announcements that he makes are part of that. Well, finally, on these two speeches, Alan, I quipped last episode that the Wentworth by-election campaign might have portended greater prominence for foreign policy issues, to which you retorted that probably not, given how poorly raising the Jerusalem and Iran nuclear deal issues seemed to go for the government. What, if anything, do you look for when assessing the politics of foreign policy in Australia between the major parties? I mean, are opposition parties reduced simply to criticising the government for mistakes? Or is there genuine scope to offer an alternative vision? Asked another way, are speeches like Bill Shorten's really about their content or simply him establishing his bona fides as a statesman in waiting? I think they're very much about uh, about the content. Uh, I uh, I do think that we, we've talked before about the different audiences for speeches mm. uh, like this. I mean, you move from the people in the room that you're talking to to the broader public who will only get it through news reports or uh, or online. Um, it's a it's a message to party colleagues. And look, probably most important in these broad strategic uh, speeches uh, of. The, the most important of the audiences is the speaker themselves, um, because it's the m- most useful way of, uh, uh, of putting your own thoughts in order mm. before you take on uh, on a big job. I mean, issues are going to come flying in through the uh, through the window, you know, uh, twenty four hours a day. So mm. you've got to have a structure in your uh, in your mind about how you think about the world, and I think that was. Uh, particularly in Shorten's speech, less so in uh, in Morrison's, one of the uh, uh, central um, uh, purposes. And of course, the prime minister or the opposition leader is the person who has to set the overall tone and direction of policy, partly to ensure that his colleagues in the sort of different uh, areas, foreign policy and defence and trade and so on, uh, are aligned and not galloping off in other different di- directions. Um, could I make? I just want to make one other comment about the the speech. One thing that disappointed me in the Morrison speech that did in the earlier foreign policy white paper was the complete absence of any reference to the resources of diplomacy or indeed to diplomats themselves. Mm. Um, uh, there were lots of references to the ADF in uh, yeah. in the foreign policy speech of the. Prime Minister, and in the one he gave on the uh, uh, on the on the Pacific, he says 
the best way to keep Australians safe is to give the best capability to the men and women of our ADF. Mm. Now, I'm all in favour of a strong Australian defence capability, but I do think that foreign policy also has a critical role in keeping Australians safe, and it would be good to see that recognised. Now, in the uh, in the uh, Pacific speech that we're going to be talking about uh, later, it's yes. true that the government announced an expansion of the diplomatic network in the uh, in the South Pacific. But it was interesting that Shorten did indeed comment in his speech that it's just as important to invest in our diplomacy in the infrastructure of our international engagement as it is to sustain our defence force and intelligence and security resources. Uh, he didn't give any specific commitments. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, um, uh, you'd want to wait and see the, the detail, but at least it was there. Okay. Well, moving on to our second topic, uh, which involves China uh, in, in recent weeks, and I think really illustrates the complexity of the strategic context and the competing interests facing Australia in its China policy. Because first we have on the 7th of November, Maurice Payne, our foreign minister, visiting Beijing. The first time an Australian foreign minister has visited China in almost three years. The occasion was the fifth Australia-China foreign and strategic dialogue. But on, I note that the fourth of these was back in February 2017 and the third, the February prior to that. So there's been a bit of a delay. Now, this followed on the heels of Trade Minister Simon Birmingham's uh, visiting Shanghai earlier that week for China's massive import expo, where he oversaw the signing of 11 major commercial agreements between Australian and Chinese companies worth some 15 billion or so dollars over the next five years. Payne's visit as foreign minister was supposed to continue a gradual thaw in bilateral relations, building upon a meeting that she had with China's foreign minister in New York in September at the United Nations that we discussed on an earlier episode. All told, it seemed to be a positive visit. The Chinese side emphasised the need to rebuild political trust, uh, and we were careful not to step on any landmines. At a joint press conference with her counterpart, Wang Yi, Payne said that the two had exchanged views on the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, but didn't go into any further detail. Prior to Payne's visit, Australia had joined with other Western nations at the United Nations in criticising China's use of internment camps. So first question, Alan, if we posit that the deep freeze in relations was caused because Australia had done something or said something that China didn't like and wanted us to stop saying or doing, how do, should we think about the factors causing this warming in relations? You know, in your assessment, has the thaw been because Australia has changed its behaviour in ways China is pleased by, that China has backed down um, from its initial demands, maybe a changing of personalities of, with a new prime minister or a foreign minister, or maybe Donald Trump? What's your assessment on, on why things are getting back on track? The answer to almost all of life's questions, Darren, is all of the above. <laughs> the Australian uh, government uh, obviously was trying to get things back on track after its own erratic uh, performance over the last 18 months or so with conflicting messages and unnecessary provocations like Turnbull's Australia has stood up mm. uh, moment. Uh, so Malcolm Turnbull decided that he was going to make a set-piece speech trying to address the damage. He did that, but before uh, anything could be consummated as a result of that, he was out of a job. And so Scott Morrison went through the same performance in his speech to the Chinese 
um, uh, community. So uh, part of it is the, the Australian government trying to um, get its message uh, uh, clearer. And I, I don't think the problem was ever really Australian policy. It was always this sort of uh, uh, very clumsy messaging. Um, with a new prime minister, new foreign minister, new trade minister, even though they've, you know, it's the same government and basically the same policies, the Chinese obviously found it easier to move on. And they also decided, I suspect, that in the middle of a much bigger stash with uh, the United States, there were going to be benefits in smoothing things over in, uh, in Canberra. So it was, um, it was an important first step. We can contrast what appeared to be successful diplomatic trips by the foreign minister and the trade minister with decisions and announcements back home that bear directly upon our relationship with China. First, the day Senator Payne arrived in Beijing, the Australian government uh, knocked back or denied a $9 billion bid from Hong Kong company CK Group for Australia's biggest gas pipeline company on national interest grounds. The other major contrast to draw relates to the Morrison government's pivot, or should I say rebalance, to the South Pacific. As I mentioned earlier, it began with his Asia Society speech, in which he said, quote, our engagement with our neighbours and family in the Pacific. As family, we deal with each other openly and honestly, and above all, with respect. But like all families, we sometimes take each other for granted. The government I lead is committed to the Pacific as one of my highest foreign policy priorities because this is where we live. This is a relationship that I want to see rise to a new level of respect, partnership, familiarity and appreciation. I want us to do better. I want to set right how we engage with our Pacific family, our Vuvali, our Wanao. I will not be taking our Pacific family for granted. Now, I apologise, listeners, for my pronunciations of the words fam- the word family in Fijian and Maori, respectively. Now, the Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu and Fiji were all mentioned in the speech, as well as working with these countries on issues of greatest concern to them, including climate solutions. He didn't say climate change, he said climate solutions. Um, now, the same day that Morrison gave his Asia Society speech, He met with PNG Prime Minister Peter O'Neill to announce a joint naval base on Manus Island, characterised by the media as Australia moving to lock in its status as PNG's major or main security partner. And later that week, in a speech to soldiers in Townsville, the Prime Minister announced a new infrastructure investment fund of $2 billion dedicated to the South Pacific's infrastructure needs as well as an extra $1 billion for Australia's Export Financing Agency. Moreover, the Prime Minister announced several new security commitments, including a mobile training team, and multiple new diplomatic posts in Palau, the Marshall Islands, French Polynesia, the Cook Islands, and the tiny, tiny island of Niue. In the words of Richard McGregor and Jonathan Pryke at the Lowy Institute, this, quote, reasserts Australia's place as the prime economic and security partner of Pacific Island nations. So, Alan, we have a raft of new initiatives aimed at scaling up Australia's presence in the South Pacific. While ScoMo, of course, claimed that the decision had nothing to do with China, it is difficult not to see the decision through any other lens. Do you agree and how do you assess this pivot or rebalance? 
Yeah, look, it was it was interesting, uh, wasn't it, that this was also central to Shorten's um, uh, speech. Uh, he announced the um, appointment of a new minister for uh, Pacific uh, Affairs. Uh, and he was going to upgrade the minister back Yeah, then. there's an assistant minister now. He'll make it a, a full minister. He talked about the defence relationship with the Pacific uh, as well. Uh, one of the many constants in Australian foreign policy over the years has been the view that the South Pacific referred to a bit patronisingly as our backyard or mm. uh, our patch uh, should be kept free of involvement by outside powers that are not our allies or that such involvement should be minimised. So we had um, in the 1980s um, uh, Fraser and the uh, concern about Soviet uh, incursions into uh, into the region. Uh, uh, Bob Hawke was worried about the Libyans at one point, and Bill Hayden, the foreign minister, then made a mercy dash across the uh, Tasman to try and get the uh, <laughs> the New Zealanders on on side. Uh, then, sort of later on in the first decade of this century, you got the concerns about ungoverned spaces into which. Uh, uh, others could move, and that was one of the motivations behind the Australian um, uh, involvement in in Solomon Islands. So Australian policy has tended to move in cycles, shifting between active engagement and a more hands-off uh, approach. You know, view that the region should take responsibility for its uh, own uh, its own affairs if if changes are to uh, uh, to be uh, lasting. So as I was reading this, I was thinking back to uh, Alexander Downer in 1998, uh, Kevin Rudd uh, 10 years later, both talking about the need for new partnerships and new ways of doing things. Uh, the Foreign Policy White Paper has a very big uh, section on the uh, South, South Pacific. So uh, I think China is obviously um, uh, one of the uh, issues that's given it uh, given it a new sort of uh, edge to uh, to Australian policy, but it's it's part of a much uh, um, longer uh, tradition in in Australia of um, of trying to keep outsiders uh, out. I thought it was interesting the way you you mentioned this, the way the government's announced the opening of uh, new posts in um, you know Cook Islands and in Niue. In the past, the reason we haven't done that, partly costs, but also partly because of New Zealand sensitivities about Australia moving into what they see as their Polynesian part of the patch. Mm -hmm. uh, no doubt we've moved beyond that now, though. I do think this China angle is quite fascinating, though. Uh, and if we bring this back to Payne's, Minister Payne's visit to Beijing, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, stated that following his meeting with, with Senator Payne, that he was happy to see Pacific Island countries uh, getting, quote, more friends across the world. And here's the main quote, though, that's really fascinating. We have agreed we could combine and capitalise on our respective strengths to carry out trilateral cooperation involving Pacific Island states. This kind of trilateral cooperation could become a new highlight, a new area in China-Australia cooperation, end quote. Now, ne neither side explained what trilateral cooperation means. But it strikes me, Alan, that notwithstanding the, the long history we have of ebbs and flows and our engagement with the South Pacific, it's going to be a bit more complicated this time. If, it seems like a new actor is determined to, to maintain its presence. 
how should we assess you know this comment uh, by the Chinese foreign minister against the backdrop of Morrison's announcements of, in- of increased engagement the week prior? Well, I, sp- I suppose trilateral uh, cooperation means sort of with the re- Australia and China with the recipient yes. country. Um, uh, in fact, I, I think uh, Australian government since uh, since Rudd's have been interested in the idea of uh, engaging with China in the provision of aid to the uh, to the South Pacific. Now, things probably looked a bit differently when uh, you know when. Uh, Ten, nine years ago when uh, when Rudd came into office, but it was partly seen as a way of socialising better behaviour, better aid practices on the part of the of the Chinese. If they could, you know, if you could work with them on uh, on aid uh, aid delivery, you might ensure that there were uh, fewer. Um, Roads to know. I don't think mm. there actually were any roads to nowhere, <laughs> but but uh, you know the, that that sort of uh, idea. And we're already operating, I think, a uh, trilateral uh, malaria program mm-hmm. in uh, in PNG with the uh, with the the Pacific. So the Chinese were actually drawing on an Australian original uh, initiation. I don't think it's a bad thing at all if we think that Chinese aid is likely to continue and given the you know the way their economy is growing it it is the more we can ensure that such aid is um, you know uh, consistent with with uh, best practice uh, on that uh, the better I don't expect that there will be <laughs> all that much of it though there will be some sort of demonstration programs and that's a good, that's a good thing but uh, but It'll be limited for the reasons that you alluded to. Okay. Well, while we're on the topic of of Chinese money, we can't move on without mentioning the recent memorandum of understanding agreed upon between China and the state of Victoria, our own home state, uh, in late October. It's been generating a bit of news here in Australia, principally because the government of Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews initially did not release the document and also had claimed that it had consulted with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but that was later denied by DFAT, uh, and the reporter Chris Yulman had been all over this doing some good reporting. Political pressure did ultimately get to the Andrews government, and they released uh, the document just a few days ago over the weekend. But I'm actually not interested in talking about the document itself, Alan, although you can pass a comment if you want to, or even China's Belt and Road diplomacy, at least not today. What I wanted to talk about is this idea of a, of a subnational political entity here in Australian state negotiating directly with a foreign government. Obviously, Victoria does not have its own Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but Australian states you know, do negotiate and enter into agreements with foreign entities you know, all the time. Now, let's take a different example from a totally different context. I think of efforts by certain American states, in particular California, to go around the Trump administration's efforts or policies on climate change. In September of this year, California's governor, Jerry Brown, hosted the Global Climate Action Summit. The list of delegates included the mayors of New York, Paris, Rotterdam, Houston and Durban, the governors of Washington State and Connecticut, the Canadian energy minister, the CEOs of Starbucks, Unilever and Kaiser Permanente. But I think most interestingly and importantly, the European Union's Energy and Climate Chief, Miguel Arias Cañete. This coalition even attended last year's UN Climate Summit in Bonn, serving as a rival US delegation 
to the small presence of the Trump administration. And personally, in this area, I think it's great. So I need to be consistent so I can't blankly deny the right of an Australian state to, to enter into these kinds of negotiations. So, Alan, what's the balance here? You know, does Victoria need its own DFAT? I'm sure it has professional bureaucrats that are tasked with international engagement, but they may not have always the training and experience of seasoned diplomats. Are there risks of neophyte state representatives getting schooled by savvy foreign counterparts? What's the path forward here? Uh, yeah, I, look, I don't think the uh, the, the risks are, uh, are very great. And okay. um, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons is that um, Victoria, you know, my home state, uh, you know, very fond of it, but it's not California in terms <laughs> of its uh, its uh, weight in the uh, weight in the world. The 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 issue here is, um, uh, you know, our constitution is uh, is different, and under the Australian Constitution, Section fifty one uh, makes it clear that external affairs, just those two words, external affairs, and uh, trade and commerce with other countries in a separate uh, subsection are the responsibility of the Commonwealth Government uh, alone and successive Australian Prime Ministers have uh, uh, have embraced uh, their freedom to move in that area. I, this is this is an entire aside, but I, because I was checking on what section of the Constitution it was before we came on, I, I reread it. And the Commonwealth is also um, responsible for something called, I'm quoting, the influx of criminals into Australia. I don't, I don't know what that uh, what they had in mind. Harking back to convict <laughs> Pres- presum- Presumably. Um, so uh, one of the interesting things now is that that external affairs power in the past has been used by Commonwealth governments to pressure the state governments on domestic issues. The Whitlam and the Hawke-Keating governments both use the external affairs power, the, um, you know, based on treaties, international treaties, which we'd, we'd uh, signed to try and expand Commonwealth uh, authority over uh, state law. But the states have always had um, overseas interests. They've been agents general in, uh, in London uh, before federation, and almost all the states now have um, representation overseas. Um, uh, some of them uh, have, um, uh, you know, particular dimensions of international relations that they're, they're concerned about. I was in Tasmania uh, last week, and uh, you know, Hobart. Uh, Hobart is, you know, a focus of Antarctic mm. uh, activities uh, there. The Northern Territory puts puts a lot of work into uh, relations with uh, with Indonesia. So those are all uh, all uh, uh, predictable. Uh, Things uh, in the past, the, the the feds have had to step in from time to time and remind the states of their rights. In 1982, the then Victorian government tried to ban visits by uh, American nuclear warships uh, in into uh, into Port Phillip Bay and had to be reminded <coughs> that the uh, Commonwealth had uh, responsibility uh, for all all of this. Uh, COAG, the Council of Australian Governments, is supposed to coordinate discussions on these um, on these uh, issues but obviously hasn't done much in uh, this case now I think there's been an awful lot of sort of hyper uh, ventilation about about the uh, the MOU on the um, 
Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it's highly general uh, motherhood statements. Mm. Uh, it, it ends with a specific clause saying this MOU does not create legal relations uh, uh, and will not uh, constitute a legally binding contractual yes. agreement between the parties. You sort of can't ask, expect more than <clears throat> than than that. It's presumably designed to give the Victorians a leg up in uh, in negotiations on infrastructure. There's a sort of small point, I suppose, that um, that the uh, that this you know Belt and Road Initiative has be- has has become a um, a talisman for uh, something else mm. in the uh, in the way people think about uh, uh, China, but uh, but although the Commonwealth government hasn't itself signed an MOU, ministers have made broadly positive nods towards it in the past, including Steve Chobo and I noticed Morrison this morning saying we've also said that we would consider individual projects on their own. Uh, merits, so I, I doubt that the Victorian MOU is going to change mm. uh, much either for the Belt and Road Initiative or for Australian foreign policy. All right, we've had some very important elections in the past few weeks that you know more about than I do, <laughs> Darren. Uh, you've been paying close attention to the US midterms. Uh, you announced last week the, uh, the the function that I think was uh, has now been held on the at the ANU on the on the uh, midterms. So. Can you tell us uh, uh, what happened? Uh, what do you see as the most important consequences of uh, those elections? Yes, well, the School of Politics and International Relations, uh, where I am based, had our event on the midterm elections last night. And so that is available on the school's Facebook page if anyone is interested for an hour-long discussion. But in short order, as I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, the Democrats retook the House the Republicans held on to the Senate and increased their majority slightly. But the Democrats overall won the popular vote by about seven, eight percentage points. And there are two major consequences, I think. First, with control of the House of Representatives gives the Democrats much more power to increase checks and balances on the Trump administration, whether it's on Donald Trump's taxes, uh, corruption, Russia. Meanwhile, in the Senate, Republicans will use their control over appointments to continue to install conservative judges uh, and to replace administration officials uh, should Donald Trump want to, as we've seen with him requiring the resignation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Overall, though, with divided government, it's unlikely that any major policy is going to go through as both sides look towards 2020 and the presidential election. So I think what's interesting to, to me and to us here in Australia is, is this electoral you know, outcome, can we consider it to be a rebuke of the Trump administration, of Trump's policy of America first, of what has he's been doing in the world? He's obviously a very unpopular president. Uh, Pew polling shows that, that around the world, although not uniformly. And so the question I was asking going into the election is, would the US public deliver the kind of rebuke that we're hoping they would to give us a path forward to <laughs> returning to normal and, and, and to the status quo. And I suspect, Alan, um, you know, you'll have some thoughts on this. I think, you know, personally that the, the, the thing, that, the major takeaway is that the outcome we saw is not that unusual. In Presidents in their first terms tend to lose midterm elections quite significantly and quite substantially. And this happened to Obama, it happened to Clinton. And so if we step back and take Trump out of the equation, the outcome looks rather normal. 
Um, and it's only when we think about the context of the campaign, and I think that Trump, you know, chose to go into a very dark sort of racially charged direction um, in the last few weeks, you know, warning of a migrant caravan that was moving its way up uh, to the Mexican border. That we, you know, that we are reminded that Trump is a very different kind of politician, and you know, we are disappointed that even with this kind of you know sort of horrifying campaign, that Trump was still managing to win a good 80, 90 percent of Republican voters, and his, at his overall approval rating, sort of stays mired in the high 30s and low 40s. And so, yes, we have this victory for House Democrats, and we can be happy that in checks and balances might increase. But overall, if we were hoping for this wholesale rebuke, that isn't what has been delivered. Now, I think there are some smaller victories, you know, for example, on the Iran nuclear deal that we've discussed on the podcast. Finally, Democrats will be able to hold the administration to account to get them to explain what the logic of the policy is. They can call Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to give testimony to explain what they're doing and why and what their logic of success is. But, you know, I think we were all hoping for a landslide rebuke and maybe that's ahead in 2020. Um, and that certainly it didn't happen this this time around. Alan, were you looking for anything in particular? How did, what's your emotional reaction to the results, if any? Uh, I think you've, uh, you've sort of described it. Um, you've described it very uh, well. Um, I thought... Uh, one, one of the interesting sidebars to Malcolm Turnbull's appearance on uh, Q&A <laughs> dramatically uh, during, the, during the week was his uh, critique of US democracy, which I, I thought was very strong. He said, uh, we're better off than the Americans in, um, in terms of uh, politics. He talked about the gerrymandering of many electorates mm. uh, uh, there. And uh, you could see in these results, as you said, uh, the popular vote uh, um, heavily for the Democrats, but not represent, not uh, reflected in uh, some of the uh, some of the electorates. That that, that, that was a, re- a result. I think it was as much as um, as you uh, might have uh, expected, given the the fact. And you, I don't think you m- mentioned this that the U.S. economy is really uh, powering ahead. Yes. So by all. Uh, earlier, uh, you know, measurements uh, the the Republicans uh, ought to be ought to be uh, way out in mm. front, and the fact that the Democrats came so uh, close uh, suggests that there's more at work here. Mm. Uh, now, an election we didn't have time to get to in our last uh, episode was uh, Brazil, Darren. Uh, what happened, and what should we be paying attention to uh, here as we go forward? Well, a long-time a politician, an ex-military man, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who is a, uh, one, and he uh, has he's very much from the far right with very strong authoritarian tendencies, and he ended up winning the presidency quite comfortably. Now, in the, during the campaign and in his prior political uh, career, he has called for the jailing of political opponents. He's expressed quite severe prejudice against women, and gays, and saying at one point that he would rather his son die than be a gay, and against Afro-Brazilians, and advocated for hideous practices like the torturing of criminals. Uh, the comedian uh, John Oliver on his show last week tonight did a very good segment on him about a month ago prior to the election that really captures his essence as a human being and as a politician and explains uh, to the world 
um, you know, why people like us, I think, find him quite horrifying. So, you know, not a great guy and on one level quite concerning that he is now in charge of a very important country. But I think the major takeaway point for our listeners uh, is to for them to recognise that in recent years, Brazil's politics has been really quite crazy and problematic. The, of the last two presidents, you know, the hugely popular Lula is in jail for corruption and money laundering, and his successor, Dilma Rousseff, was also impeached. Corruption scandals have tainted an extraordinarily high number of the country's mainstream politicians. And you combine that sort of you know, political corruption with a huge law and order problem. You know, last year, there were upwards of 70,000 murders in the country, almost all of which don't get solved, um, and a large inequality problem. And you have a population that has you know, realised or concluded that the status quo politics wasn't working and were therefore looking to, you know, willing, I suppose, to look past the outlandish statements of, of Bolsonaro and give him a try. And that might sound familiar. Um, and so whether he's Brazil's Donald Trump or Brazil's Rodrigo Duterte, he's the latest data point in a clear trend that, uh, you know, that, that populations are willing to give you know, out there, you know, outlier politicians who seem very controversial and problematic to people like you and me, Alan, they're willing to give them a try. And so I think the point that we take away from this is one about institutions. The entire point of elections is that if incumbents do a bad job, they get kicked out. And so this, in most ways, is institutions functioning normally. And Brazil does treasure its democracy. It was a former military dictatorship with a, a long history of authoritarianism. And, and so a, a country that only has sort of about, about three decades of, of democracy does take democracy very seriously. So the question is, given that we've had someone like Bolsonaro elected, whether those institutions can survive the leadership of a president who is in many ways hostile to them. Um, you know, the previous government did not try to shut down the courts when they were, you know, were allowed corruption and impeachment proceedings to go through, which means that you saw many senior politicians arrested and jailed for, for, for committing crimes. So given that we have now a leader in Bolsonaro with authoritarian instincts, the question is whether he will try to undermine those institutions if they don't perform in ways that he is happy with. And that's the thing we need to pay attention to. But the undermining of those kinds of institutions is something that will require a certain degree of consent from the people of Brazil. So what we're asking ourselves, or what we should ask ourselves now, is whether Brazil will go down the path of a country like Hungary or perhaps Turkey, in which these liberal political institutions have been repeatedly undermined, or whether the democratic process will bring renewal once more, as we have arguably to some extent seen in the US midterms, but also in important ways in recent elections in the Maldives and Malaysia this, this year. So I think in one sentence, it's the second election that matters, not the first. And the last thing I'll say on this point is that you know, running countries is very hard. Um, and so you know, the historical record for authoritarian political systems is not very strong in terms of economic success, unless, of course, they have a large um, oil windfall. And so you know, if you suppress the good ideas and the institutions that are important for policymaking, the outcome tends not to be very good. And so this is not to say that we shouldn't be concerned that someone like Bolsonaro can be, was elected, but that what we need to care about above all is the political institutions that can lead to renewal again, you know, the, the same kinds of forces that, that saw him rise to power, taking that power away from him if he does a bad job. 
the courts, the media, elections. And this is not just true, of course, in Brazil, but in every country where we are worried about you know, a radical new leader. If the courts and the media and elections may retain their integrity, then renewal re will happen. Uh, and that's what we have to defend. Alan, does that sound right to you or do you have any reactions from afar? No, that's, that sounds uh, very right to me, except that an awful lot of damage can be done between the first and the second uh, uh, election, but it is, as you say, the institutions that matter. Yes, yeah, a lot of damage can be done. I guess that's, that's the point. The democracies have that, you know, do give that outlet um, and there's not much we can, we can do about it uh, in the short term. Anyway, okay, well, let's wrap up today's podcast with our reading, listening and watching segment. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching? Uh, it's always good to find something that changes the way you think about issues. So thanks to another podcast listener, I read for the first time an essay by the Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist, uh, Paul Krugman, called Competitiveness a Dangerous Obsession. Now, this is not new. It was published in the uh, magazine Foreign Affairs in 1994. And those were the days when geoeconomic competition meant American concern that, a, that Japan would become yes. number one. So Krugman's central point, and so relevant still today, uh, is that the whole idea that nations are in economic competition with each other is meaningless. Companies are in competition, Nations can be in military and other forms of rivalry, but the idea of economic competition between uh, countries is, uh, uh, makes no sense. Trade is not a zero-sum game. It's simply not the case, he writes, that the world's leading nations are to any important degree in economic competition with each other or that any of their major economic problems can be attributed to failures on world markets. Uh, he explains why the rhetoric of uh, uh, comp competition and competitiveness is so attractive and he predicts some of the very risks we're now seeing, protectionism and trade wars and, and bad public uh, policy. So I thought it was a terrific message, not just for the US, but for China uh, as well. And you can find the Krugman article online. Okay, I'll try to put a link up in the show notes if I can track one down. Well, I've got a very quick one. Uh, it's the end of semester here at the ANU with exams. And I have not had the time to do any reading, listening or watching of any particular import. So I'll just recommend to our listeners um, perhaps my favourite composer, who's Ludovico Einaudi, or Einaudi, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's Italian and he's still alive right now. Uh, and my favourite of his works uh, is called uh, Devenir, uh, which translates from Italian either as to become or becoming. And he just writes, you know, composes beautiful um, music. Uh, and during stressful periods, it's a great way to, to relax and, and to, to just chill out a little bit. So, um, yeah, Ludovico Einaudi. And again, I'll put a, a link up to him in the show notes. Okay, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank AII interns Stephanie Roll, our research assistant, and Manny Bovell, our audio engineer, Martin Pierce of the Crawford School for Technical Support, Rory Stanning for composing our theme music, and last but not least, AIA CEO Melissa Conley-Tyler for her constant support. Talk to you again soon.